Computer, initialize Holosuite. Hello everyone and welcome back. Today I have a really exciting episode in store for you. Before I get into today's episode about the philosophy of Ghost in the Shell, I would first like to just give a shout out to my two friends, Yunette and Emma, and my sister Demi, because for my birthday last week, they bought me this really awesome podcasting mic that I can now use for my podcast. So thanks to them, you can now look better, look forward to better sound quality, and um, I will keep bringing you really interesting topics. So yes, thank you for them, and um, I'm really enjoying my new gift. So yeah. Right, um, let's get right into today's episode. So today I will be talking about Ghost in the Shell. So just to kind of delineate what I'm talking about, Ghost in the Shell has a few um, different versions. So there's the 1995 anime, which was the first one and the original one, and it's a movie. And then after that, a few years later, I'm not sure how... can't remember if it was 1997 or 98 or if it was in the early I think maybe 2001 I'm really not sure don't quote me on this but there was a second Ghost in the Shell anime movie it was called Ghost in the Shell Innocence and then in 2017 they rebooted it with Scarlett Johansson they made a live action version of Ghost in the Shell which I think I will talk about next week because how they changed the original story, all of that is quite interesting, especially regarding the philosophy of the movie. And then, even more recently, there was a Netflix series. It was called Ghost in the Shell... No, Ghost in the Shell SAC underscore 2045. (laughs) I'm still not sure after watching it what that title actually means, but I watched the whole series. It's quite good, but it's much more action-focused, and the animation is also um, different. It's the 3D animation, um, not the like the more traditional animation that we see of in the first one. So. Yes, so today what I'm going to be talking about is none of those, but the first one, the 1995 first original rendition of Ghost in the Shell. And then I'm also going to be talking a little bit about about cyber feminism, cyber culture, and especially the notion of embodiment and disembodiment, and how feminists have kind of used that idea um, for for feminism and also how we see ideas of embodiment and disembodiment take uh, take place or take part in the Ghost in the Shell movie. So today's episode might be a little bit deeper and maybe more academic orientated, but I'll still try to make it fun. This um, that movie is quite close to my heart, and the first time I saw it, actually, I had absolutely no idea what was going on. Maybe I was too young to understand it. But then, as I started my PhD research, I um, I had to watch it again because it became part of my research. And when I watched it the second time, I was really amazed at how profound, how philosophical how deep and how contemplative and how well written um, that movie is. If you haven't watched it already, I highly recommend it. It is, it's very deep. 
It's very good. I can go on about how great it is forever, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to get right into the episode. Okay, so first I want to give a bit of academic background on the idea of embodiment and disembodiment. Now, at the turn of the century here, late 1990s, early 2000s, with computer technology really gaining ground. And we see in movies such as Terminator how people's fears about technology also kind of became manifested in popular culture. This whole idea that, you know, the internet will become sentient and then destroy all life on Earth. (laughs) And then, of course, there was the millennium bug and all of this panic about the end of the world and how technology is going to make the world end and, you know, a lot of panic. Um, But also in the same, at the same time, there's a lot of hope, especially for feminists, because and I think I might have explained this in the episode about cyber feminism and Seven of Nine as well. For women, women's bodies have been the site of their oppression for, for a very long time. It is, again, going back to the whole notion that women can bear children and that links women to the earth. And also because women can bear children, especially in the 1960s during feminism's second wave, and that's kind of one of the reasons why the second wave existed or why it started was to address this idea that um, women simply were considered housewives because women were the only ones that can bear children in the family. So yeah, women's bodies have kind of, and then not just bearing children, but also the sexualization of women's bodies. Women's bodies have for a very long time, really been the site of their oppression, but also the site of their emancipation, which I'll touch on later. But you can imagine the idea that in the cyber world, we can be disembodied or we can be separated from our bodies. You can imagine that feminists saw a lot of potential in that. And I think there is potential in that, but it needs to be used correctly. And I think somewhere along the line, um, something went wrong. (laughs) But in Ghost in the Shell, before I get into the discussion, um, the, the main thing that I would like to show is that actually the 1995 Ghost in the Shell Even the major, so her name is Major Motoko Kusanagi, (laughs) she's Japanese. So even for the major, I'm just going to call her the major from now on. I'm not going to say her full name the whole time. But for the major too, actually, disembodiment is her empowerment uh, at the end of the day, if you've watched that movie. And also there's that notion that women's, uh, not women's, humans, (laughs) all people's, brains can be separated from their bodies. Um, At the end of the movie, we see how the major's consciousness simply gets transferred into the body of a pre-adolescent girl. So it's, it's quite interesting how society viewed the idea of embodiment and disembodiment in the 90s. And like I will show next week in next week's episode, actually, this has changed quite a bit. But enough of that let me let me get into the theoretical part of it so there was this sci-fi author his name was william gibson and he wrote this very seminal sci-fi novel Uh, it was called burning chrome and in burning chrome he gave a very interesting definition of what the cyber realm is or what cyberspace is 
So cyberspace, in science fiction at least, he kind of um, established this definition of cyberspace in science fiction. And I quote, he says, it refers to a disembodied digital parallel reality reached via neural connections where all the world's data is stored. So like I mentioned at the turn of the century, the proposition that a per person's identity is based on an informational pattern rather than an embodied inaction seemed like it could be reality rather than fiction with the advent of new technologies such as prosthetic limbs and implants and especially the World Wide Web or the Internet. So there's of course, and we all know this by now because we all use the Internet, but the Internet and the the whole idea of a disembodied uh, disembodied existence it has some potentials because um, you can play World of Warcraft or any online game for that matter, and you can simply um, pretend to be a male <laughs> or as a male you can pretend to be a female. Um, it's totally disembodied, or that's what they say. Um, I would argue that it's not because you're still an embodied person behind the computer. <laughs> But um, yeah, I'm not going to get into that. But with the advent of the internet, and especially, I would argue, uh, even video games like World of Warcraft, actually, this idea became quite, um, quite mainstream. And then the possibilities of a disembodied existence, that's also grappled with in representations of female cyborgs, and especially in the representation of the major. Okay, so... Just to give a little bit more theoretical background, in the 21st century industrialized societies, new technologies like microelectronics, uh, telecommunication networks, nanotechnology, virtual reality, which is much bigger now than it was at that time, and computer-mediated communications like email <laughs> and other forms of computer technology, all of these um, technologies kind of suggested that the body has become redundant. You know, why do we need the body if the computer can do everything basically for us? Um, these types of, of arguments started taking place. And contempt for the body and a move towards no bodies. This, this idea that we don't need our bodies or, you know, that our bodies are just these kind of biological mass that interfere with our daily lives. You know, I always think, wow, if I didn't have this physical body, it would be, you know, I would get so much more done because I wouldn't need to eat or sleep. You know, I, like sleep takes up one third of our lives. So <laughs> I, I totally get this. Um, a move towards the nobody sentiment. It already started to be manifested in 17th century enlightenment thinking, actually. But now it's morphed into 21st century cyber projects that express aversion towards the body. And then, of course, these antibody ideals can be seen in pop culture and especially in the cyberpunk genre, but then it is also explored in science fiction. Now, um, and I think I keep hammering on about this <laughs> all the time, but just the brief look at the Major's body, I found it quite fascinating that even though her body in the Ghost in the Shell anime seems quite unimportant to her, I mean, um, by the end of the movie, she tries to open the tank and then she kind of rips her whole, this whole cyborg body apart. 
But even though the body is apparently not important, it is still this very beautiful idealized body that they've given the major. And um, throughout some scenes in, in the movie, it is often naked body, even though it's technically not an organic body, it is a machine. But the way they've drawn it is in some places quite sexualized. And um, this just go goes back to my argument about the sexualization of cyborgs, of female cyborgs especially, um, that I that I talked about in the discussion of Seven of Nine. You know, it's quite interesting how it's just, it just seems to be impossible for women to <laughs> get away from this. You know, why is there an opening in the opening sequence? Why is there a shot where we see her full naked body in view? Um, why doesn't she wear clothes all the time? <laughs> that naked pursuit scene. You know, why is it that she needs to be naked in order for for this machine body to become invisible. Um, yeah, it's just a side thing, but um, I really think it reveals a lot about the 1990s at least, or, you know, female cyborgs in general from that time. I say that now because next week I will argue that actually uh, Scarlett Johansson's representation of the major is much less sexualized and her her machine body or her cyborg body is also much less fetishized but I'll get to that next week so that's just a side point um, you know the sexualization of cyborg bodies and women's bodies it it seems to be a really big thing um, even the major that hate her body or that shows this kind of aversion or the unimportance of her body it's still somehow very important for that body to be very sexy <laughs> anyway um that's not the key point that i'm trying to get so it's just a side note okay but what ghost in the shell also does is that it explores the con the transcendence of consciousness so in my argument or what I think is that this aversion towards the body and this notion that that our our brains can simply be implanted into a machine or another person's body, the, the whole idea that bodies do not need to be embodied, we see that exemplified in the Ghost in the Shell anime from 1995. So the major has a human brain, so according to the story, which was placed in an entirely cybernetic body. And then in the anime film, she hunts a bodiless super hacker that emerged on the net and became self-aware and sentient and then infiltrates government cyborgs. So it's quite interesting that the, the notion that even... Uh, uh, a hacker that hasn't had a body in the first place emerged totally from the internet or from the web that something with sentience can actually emerge from uh, something that doesn't in any real sense exist and I found that very deep and I think it really embodies a lot of human beings fears about technology and I, we still have that even 20 years later maybe more than more than it was at that time you know the whole idea that oh my phone is listening to me or what if my computer is watching me uh, we still we still have those ideas and um the other day who told me that they they did something with google uh don't quote me on this i'm really just going on something very brief that someone told me they said something about um yeah they're trying to 
or they're making Google smart enough to take care of itself or something like that. And I remember telling them, you know, did they not watch Terminator? <laughs> like, what if Google becomes sentient and kills all of us? <laughs> you know, um, so it's still these fears, even in 1995, and I think especially in 1995, when the internet was quite a new thing and um, there was the fear of the millennium bug, we see human beings' fears about technology, you know, manifested in this anime, in, in this super hacker that becomes self-aware and then infiltrates other government cyborgs. So yes, that is to say that it, he or she, never had a body to begin with. And then what's very interesting about this is that when the hacker actually infiltrates another female cyborg's body, he speaks with a male voice. So that also made me ask myself the question, is there then something like a male consciousness or a female consciousness? What is it that makes our consciousness male or female. I think it was a very interesting choice that they that they decided to give this male hack this bodiless hacker a male voice and ascribe a gender to it even though it it is it is uh it doesn't have a body. So then we ask the question, you know, are our consciences male or female or are our bodies male and fe or female and that influences our consciousnesses? You know, is there something like a male or a female consciousness? And that is just something to think about. And then, of course, this talks a lot about um, transgender um, issues. Um, recently, I'm following Elliot Page on Instagram and on uh, all the social media. I saw his interview with Oprah, too. I didn't watch the whole one, but I saw parts of it. Um, you know, I think Ghost of Ghost in the Shell, um, by giving this this bodiless hacker a male voice, it really asks in interesting questions about our embodiment of our own bodies, and um, you know whether we feel like I don't fit into this body or not. You know, is it our bodies that that influence our minds? Is it our minds that influences our bodies? Well, Ghost in the Shell actually says that it's neither. You know. Um, which is, uh, you know, I think it would have been, well, I can't say it would have been better if the, the hacker spoke in a female voice, but I think it would have made more sense if the hacker that didn't have a gender, that really emerged only from the web, that the hacker spoke with a female voice when the hacker was in the female cyborg. And then if it embodied a male cyborg, spoke in a male voice. Uh, I think according to me, that would just have made a little bit more sense. But I found it very fascinating that they ascribed a specific gender to this bodiless and, and um, yeah, bodiless and sentient, you know, piece of the internet <laughs> that just became um, a consciousness. But anyway, enough of that. So yes, the the hacker, he's called the Puppet Master. Uh, he emerges from the web and then eventually steals a female cybernetic body that's similar to that of the majors. And then he seeks political asylum as an embodied entity. So there's another fascinating point. Why does only an embodied entity get political asylum? It is so um, apt that the male or the 
yeah, I should stop. <laughs> I'm just going to say he, the puppet master, because he has a male voice. It's so interesting that he needs to be embodied in order to receive political asylum. But then eventually the major cybernetic body is destroyed in battle and her consciousness, as well as that of the puppet master, they are kind of combined and then transferred into the cybernetic body of a pre-adolescent girl. So together the new consciousness, it's not the major or the puppet master, but it is a new consciousness or a new ghost, <laughs> suggested from the title, Ghost in the Shell, created from merging the two. So once again, we see this notion that, you know, consciousnesses, they're not only disembodied to, you know, per person, but they can even merge into some new type of consciousness and then embody another body that is the body of a pre-adolescent girl. So this idea that the mind and body can be split, it is totally totally portrayed in the major's narrative and her choice in the end too to move on to this next stage of human evolution which is apparently being a disembodied entity that is on the web so this again implies that the body is simply a shell the the body doesn't um, doesn't affect the consciousness at all you know, I thought to myself at the end of that scene, if my body, if my consciousness were to be placed in the body of a pre-adolescent girl, I would definitely be <laughs> impacted by that. I would definitely be influenced by that. But it seems that um, for the major who has now merged with the puppet master, that doesn't matter at all. So this philosophy that Ghost in the Shell embraces, it... It is very much a philosophy of disembodiment. And it could be good for feminism. Um, there is a theorist, her name is Despina Kakudaki. She says, the puppet master, which could be he, she or it, also destabilizes the concepts of identity and selfhood that are important to the major and also to us. You know, it forces us to reconsider embodiment it forces us to reconsider identity and our selfhood and it gives us the opportunity to possibly reconfigure them if that makes sense i hope i'm making sense um so in terms of feminism that could be quite uh, quite empowering um if if our bodies didn't matter then women would not be subjugated because of their bodies if me as a woman could simply transfer my consciousness into that of perhaps maybe a cyborg body that has no sex or gender or maybe even into a male body you know i would be able to experience different kind kind of privileges um, maybe, maybe just um, transferring my consciousness into a body that cannot give birth <laughs> or that cannot provide sex. Um, you know, um, for feminism or for women then that are, that are subjugated or that are oppressed because of childbirth and because of sex, then that could be quite empowering. So we see how for feminism this could work. <laughs> There's a lot of there's a lot of potential for that. But 
what is interesting, there's this theorist, her name is Amanda Dupre, and I've mentioned her before because she's, uh, I'm totally a fan of her, and she actually works at our university, and um, I uh, I always get a bit starstruck <laughs> when I see her. I, I wonder if she'll ever listen to this. If she does, um, yeah, maybe I'm revealing too much, but anyway, <laughs> I'm sure she'll understand. Um, according to Amanda Dupre, one of cyber feminism's main aims, though, and I actually misunderstood this in the beginning. I thought that cyber feminism was all about disembodiment and, you know, embracing this idea that our consciousnesses should be removed from our bodies, you know, that the internet is really empowering for women because our bodies are not present. But actually, for cyber feminists, one of the main aims of cyber feminism is actually to reinstate women within the body. And I will let you know now why bodies are important. So there's a seminal text for cyber feminism that really questions these utopian ideas of disembodiment. And it was written by Catherine Hales. Uh, I unfortunately, I don't know her <laughs> or I've never met her, but I'm sure I will be starstruck if I meet her too. But she wrote a book. It was called How We Became Post-Human. Now, the whole idea of post-humanism, uh, I'm not going to get into too much detail with that because that's quite like <laughs> deep and hectic. But the problem with the cyborg that um, Catherine Hales uh, articulates in this book is that it conceives of information as a disembodied entity that can flow between carbon-based organic components and silicon-based electric electronic components to make protein and silicon operate as a single system. Okay, so maybe I should uh, paraphrase or rephrase. Basically, what she's saying is that the problem with the idea of disembodiment is that it suggests that, you know, our consciousnesses can just be transformed, um, you know, flow between going into a machine and going back into my body and not having any actual consequences. Okay, obviously, um, I think I would have a lot of mental trauma and a lot of consequences if I had to go into my computer and then come back into my own body or go into the body of a man and then come back into my own body. Um, you know, we, we think these things are so utopian, but when you actually have to imagine yourself doing this, uh, you're like, oh my goodness, no, I would never. <laughs> that is quite hectic. So for her, this is quite uh, problematic. And she says, and this is highly problematic for her too, when information loses its body, equating humans to computers is especially easy, for the materiality in which the thinking mind is instantiated appears incidental to its essential nature. Okay, um, I'm not sure what that last part meant, to be honest, that's very academic mumbo-jumbo, but um, when information loses its body, uh, equating humans to machines can be quite easy. And there's a very interesting statement that the doctor makes in the, um, the Ghost in the Shell reboot with Scarlett Johansson. She tells the one guy, um, the one doctor, or he's, she's like, no, you cannot reduce a human, um, human mind simply, or you cannot reduce a human being to simply to a machine. That's what the doctor says to one of the other people that suggests like, oh, just, you know, 
the major must just get over it. And um, yeah, I'm definitely going to talk about this next week. But the major that we see in 2017 in the Ghost in the Shell uh, reboot or remake or live action remake, I'm not sure what to call it. Um, she is exact opposite. She actually really embraces embodiment and she really struggles to embody her new cybernetic body. But I'll talk about that next week. Okay, um, so this is again uh, Amanda Dupree's argument. She says that for women, even though getting rid of the body, which has been essentialized by patriarchal discourses and systems as that which embodies, bears children and tends to the private domain and is the closest to nature, you know, even though this may seem alluring to feminists, and as these cyborgs also suggest, for a feminist agenda, it poses serious problems. And I quote, this is what she says. She says that, how do women rally for political issues if there are no bodies to base these claims on? If there are no women, you know, in the sense that there are no actual women, how, for instance, can women mobilize and campaign for reproductive rights or violence against women? These rights are embodied in specific locations, contexts and sexed bodies. So, without bodies, then the category of women dissolves completely. And then this runs into a dead end for feminism. And then, I quote, she says, it has more or less the same political implications for women as patriarchy's confinement for, of women to being mere or animalized embodied beings. Now, you see why I love her, <laughs> because this argument is really solid. It's true. If women didn't have our bodies, then how can we, if we don't have our reproductive organs, how can we fight for reproductive rights? For example, women's bodies <laughs> or being embodied is quite important. And that is what makes Ghost in the Shell, the 1995 version, a little bit problematic for feminism. <laughs> because the major suggests that bodies are irrelevant. After all, it is the sites that are women's bodies that have sparked feminist activism in the first place, right? The suffragettes movement and then, of course, also um, Firestone that talked about all the reproductive rights. Um, Betty Friedan that talked about um, the women being confined to, confined to the home. And then Simone de Beauvoir. All of these really important feminist texts, it's about women's bodies <laughs> at the end of the day. So... Techno transcendence, it may in fact actually reinforce gender dualisms instead of subverting them. According to Elaine Graham, she's another theorist, she says, given the traditional association of women with the bodily, the affective, and the realm of nature, cyber culture just looks like another attempt by patriarchy to deny these aspects of experience in favor of the virtual the abstract and the disembodied. And then interestingly, after the major merges with the puppet master, she actually mentions that her cybernetic body cannot give birth. So she gives birth to new consciousnesses through combining data and information on the net. So if women can't give birth, um, how do we fight for women's uh, reproductive rights? And then actually, in fact, the, the puppet master was initially conceived in this way <laughs> yeah, as a, 
um, as a consciousness that just emerged on the web. Now, of course, these arguments can also run into problems um, because uh, some theorists have argued that, you know, um, this essentializes the women's bodies. So, so it, it kind of suggests that, you know, all women are only women if they can bear children. You know, a woman is only a real woman if she has these certain um, qualities, such as being able to give birth, uh, maybe kindness, being able to cook, clean well. Um, so, of course, the, the whole idea of the body, too, you know, it can run into problems. But... Definitely the the majors or ghost in the shells idea of women's bodies. Um, I think that should not be unproblematically embraced either. That is really a techno utopian <laughs> future for women. And um, that I don't think is going to exist or it does not exist. It, it really idealizes disembodiment and it... Um, it makes it seem like this is the answer to feminism, um, but I don't think it is. I think we need our bodies <laughs> in order to fight for our bodies and the rights of our bodies. Yes, so again, um, not a very long discussion today, but that is really the crux of Ghost in the Shell that I wanted to get to. Like I mentioned, when I first saw Ghost in the Shell, it really made me think quite deeply about my position in the world and myself as an embodied entity. And I really asked myself this question, if I were to put, if my consciousness were to be put in a different body, you know, how would that affect my mind? And how would my mind affect my body? Um, that movie really made me question all these types of things. So if you are having a contemplative Saturday night or Friday night or Sunday evening, and you feel like thinking deeply about why we are here, then I highly recommend watching Ghost in the Shell. Actually, after doing this episode, I feel like I'm going to watch it again too. And um, yes, these are the insights that I have gained um, about this movie through putting it through a cyber feminist lens or through um, applying feminism to it. So I hope you found this informative. I hope you enjoyed the discussion. And then next week, you can look forward to a continuation of the discussion of Ghost in the Shell. I will be looking at the 2017 remake, live action remake of the movie and how that movie approaches embodiment and disembodiment. And um, yes, just a spoiler, it is much different from how the 1995 anime talks about it. So I will link that to Feminism 2. And um, yes, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you once again for listening. Thank you for all the support on the YouTube channel and for um, listening to this podcast. I really am excited that everyone is enjoying it, that everyone's listening to it so much. Um, yes, and again, thank you for my friends for giving me this awesome new mic. All right, everyone. Goodbye, live long and prosper, and then see you again next week. Bye-bye. This show is brought to you by Sweet Media. Computer, list other available Sweet Media programs.
Loading Holosuite Preview Program 4, Blast Shield, a Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. I think we all thought Ransom was going to go into that fight scene, thinking that it was game over before it even started and he was going to lose. But I think the moment he rips his uniform off, (laughs) which is hard anyway to rip a shirt, but to rip an actual like jacket like that, Mm. pretty impressive. And then he had like about, I don't know, I think it was like 62 abs. He just looked ripped and then he was just like you know a little bit of this yeah a little bit of that i was just gonna say it was the way that he also narrated it it was just perfect it was great ransom definitely went to the school of kirk foo ransom foo maybe we should be calling it loading holosuite preview program for the janeway a star trek voyager podcast <sighs> i don't know what the director which i think was david livingstone i think was thinking here but they basically did a montage of them running around the ship and it's just like ugh. It was very rocky. It was. Dun, I expected Eye of the Tiger dun, dun, to be dun, playing. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Especially when Shell picks up the water from the table and is drinking it. <laughs> Computer, deactivate Holosuite.